This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I'm Christy Brower, here with my co-host, Katie Weaver. Good morning. Good morning. We are so excited to be here, or evening, or midday, or whatever time it is when you're listening to this. True. We're really excited. This is our maiden voyage of True Crime Paranormal. I will tell you that it is not our maiden voyage as podcasters. You have probably, if you're listening today, you probably know us in some way. Maybe from Blog Talk Radio, maybe from CBS News Sky Radio, and maybe from One Two Radio. But they are all live streaming podcast sources, and that that is where you'll probably have heard us before. But we're here with a brand new show, a brand new format, and something we are super excited about. So the way this will work, as you know, our name is True Crime Paranormal, and. What that means is that we're going to cover each story in our podcast in two ways. The first is we will cover it in true crime style. We're going to tell you the story. We're going to tell you about all the players in the story. We're going to tell you about the investigation. We're going to tell you about all the theories. And then we're going to take a little break and move into what we call the psychic analysis. So these stories, every story that we tell on this uh on this podcast will be a story that has a paranormal bent, a paranormal element, a paranormal theory, but it will also be a true crime theory of some sort. So we're, we want to mix it up. We, we both are true crime junkies. We are also paranormal junkies. Katie and I both have worked for many years as professional psychics and done lots of work in the world of paranormal stuff, paranormal phenomenon. And so we decided to take all of that and roll it into one podcast. So that's what we're so excited about sharing with you today. So I think, Katie, we ought to get going with our very first story. I think so too. This is really fun. It's so exciting. And it's really fun to, it's different for us because, you know, I was thinking about where we've always done live radio. Um, yeah. Be, being evergreen, you know, that people are going to listen whenever they're going to listen. And it's just, yeah, this is all a little different. It's really it fun. Is. I have loved the creative angle so far of this uh, endeavor with both of us, all of the research. It's, oh my gosh. Oh, Yeah. I, I'm having a hard time doing anything else, to be honest. I, I had to <laughs> climb out of my rabbit hole this morning to get ready to even uh-huh. record the podcast because I've been, I was watching a documentary on this story up to like 20 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. for real, this it, has been wild. So wild. Yeah. It's so awesome. I love the research. I, it reminds me how much of a journalist I am at heart, you know, mm-hmm. and how much oh, I yeah. love the 
the research angle and looking at all of the different pieces. So it's yes. going to be great. So today, of course, we're talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Of course we are. Um, if you haven't heard about the Dyatlov Pass incident, you've probably been living under a rock or possibly in a cave with a mink. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> probably with a mink. It's possible because this is a super, super famous story, particularly in Russia. They call it the JFK of Russia because this is the most famous unsolved conspiracy kind of story, mythological story, even in some ways, uh, in, in, in Russian culture. So this happened in 1959. So on January 23rd-ish of 1959, the dates are all a little dicey. This was a long time ago. So, but roughly January 23rd, 1959, a group of originally 10 uh, cross-country skiers from Ural Polytechnic Institute set off on a trek. Now, this was quite a trip. It was throughout in the wilds of Siberia in the winter. It was a cross-country ski trip that was 200 miles, and it was supposed to be completed in 16 days. Now, this was a dangerous trip, and it was a trip that some people thought they should not undertake. Um, Igor Dyatlov was the leader of this expedition and he was a very experienced cross-country skier and had done tons of backcountry cross-country skiing. And to him, he was like, eh, we're fine. We're going to be fine. This is just going to be great. So they're, they, they cross, um, 190 miles of their trip is across the North Ural Mountains. This is in, uh, Western Russia. It is Siberia. And, um, it is almost completely uninhabited. And we'll talk about who does inhabit this place, but it is mostly uninhabited. So what they were going to do is they were going to travel to a point where there was a town. They were going to send a telegram that said, hey, we made it. And then they were going to turn around and go back the way that they had been. So they were, you know, going to let somebody know halfway through that they were okay. So I'm going to tell you the sort of generally accepted version of this story first. And then we will get into some of the other facets of this, because you have to remember, this is Russia in 1959. Okay. This is KGB era. This is mm. everything is classified. This is the Russian government lies about everything kind of era. Like this is, this is a, it's a scary time and it's a time in which it's very difficult to know exactly what's true, but I will tell you the roughly accepted publicly accepted story. And then we'll get into some of the other things. So their last night of their trek was February 1st or 2nd. And they made camp at the foot of what I will call the mountain of the dead. I'm not going to attempt all the Russian because I know I'll get it wrong. My Idaho vernacular not working today. And I don't want to disrespectfully <laughs> mispronounce everything. So, so the thing is, when they made camp at the foot of the dead of the mountain of the dead, is that they this isn't where they were supposed to be. They had kind of lost their way due to blizzarding conditions, of course. And they were about six miles off course. Now, that night, the temperature was somewhere between minus 30 and minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. That is <sighs> below zero, guys. Now, Katie and I are from Idaho. We are very familiar with below zero weather. We know how 
unbelievably dangerous it is to go out in minus oh, three, yeah. minus 40 below weather. Like I cannot imagine being on a cross country ski trip, staying in a tent in that kind of cold. No, I mean, when you walk outside in 30 below weather and, and we've both done it instantly, your lungs feel a little frozen. Your snot freezes in your nose. Yeah. Your, your breath freeze, your breath freezes. Like that is unbelievably cold. It's My so question with that too, and, and I don't know if you know, but is that re- including wind chill or not including wind chill? Do you know? I believe it is including wind chill. As I understand it, it's including wind chill because if, if there, if it wasn't, it could have been easily 20 or 30 degrees below zero, yeah. even more yeah, with wind chill with the, because, yeah. Cause when it's that cold, even a tiny breeze can drop the temperature another 10, 20 degrees. So yeah, as we know, yeah. I mean, we've, we've been in um, sub-zero weather recently mm-hmm. and it might be one or two degrees above zero and with wind chill, it's 10 or 12 degrees below. Yeah. And that's just with a light breeze. So, yeah, I do believe that this was with wind chill, although, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of conflicting stories around it. Exactly. But but what we know is it was damn cold. Right. Right. Cold at this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I told that schools would be canceled, you know, if you where you live, if that happened, schools would be canceled, works, you know, workplaces would be canceled. Like this is the kind of weather that people would be urged to stay home in. Yeah. Locked down. Vehicles don't start. Um, You will freeze. You will get frostbite within just minutes of being outside. You know, injury from the cold is very, very dangerous and happens very quickly at this temperature. So we know that at this time. Something happens. Now, we're going to get into a lot of different theories about what happens. But ultimately, what (coughs) happens is that all nine of the people that are still on the expedition at this point, and we're going to tell the story of the 10th who isn't with them at the time later, but all nine of the individuals on this expedition die. They all die. And they do not make it to the their checkpoint. They're supposed to make it to their checkpoint by the 20th of February. They don't get there. Uh, maybe it's the 15th of February, 15th to the 20th, somewhere in there, they were supposed to send that telegram. Well, they don't. So somebody sounds the alarm and they send out a search party looking for them. It takes them a week to find their camp, to find to find them at all. So they're out in this way, super remote area. It, it is, you know, so it is literally three weeks since they have died before they're found. So one of the problems with knowing exactly what happened to them is that three weeks of Siberian weather occurred between the time that they died and the time that they were found. And I think that that's a huge factor in, 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 in having a difficult time knowing exactly what happened. So about a week after they set off, the search party finds the tent that they had set up at the foot of the Mountain of the Dead. The tent is abandoned, and in the pictures that I've seen, it's got quite a bit of snow on it, and it's partially collapsed. They start, one one of the things that they find very interestingly, they kind of uncover the tent, they look inside, and all of their snow clothes are in there. Their boots, their coats, all the stuff that you would most definitely be wearing if you were outside in minus 40 degree temperatures are inside the tent. The other thing that they find that is really weird is that there are slits cut in the tent. The the tent is literally cut open like with a knife. Later they will determine forensically. Now, 
forensically. Okay, this is 1959. I don't know how much forensically really they had, but what they say they determine is that it, the tent was cut open from the inside, which is a very strange thing. If you're yeah. in minus 40 degree weather, you know that the only thing keeping you alive is the body heat of all the people with you inside that tent. You would not cut a hole in it. It would kill you for real. So what it appears to, what appears to have happened is that they left the tent in a huge hurry, leaving behind even their boots. They were all either barefoot or wearing socks. Um, and some, some were wearing like one shoe. Like they were just trying to throw on whatever they could in a hurry and they were out of there, out of that tent. Now, this is unbelievable to me thinking about what would make me leave a tent in 40, minus 40 degree weather at night in Siberia. And, and, and I can't think of a damn thing <laughs> that would make me go out into that. Can you? Right. Well, I can't think of what would make me go in the first place, but well, <laughs> me either, me either. But I, but you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a hardcore backcountry cross country skier, and we know people who are. Lots of people where we live are, but I wouldn't do it. Uh, but essentially, you would have to know that if you are leaving that tent and heading out into that, you are going to die. You're going to die. You know, yeah. I mean, that's you would have to know at least some part of you, even if you were in some state of terror. That was the last ditch effort. I mean, you know, that's to me. Exactly. You know, it was I, just panic. It was not rational yeah. thinking because no. if you're going to die in the tent, you're also going to die outside the tent. That's just yeah. the reality of it. Um, they find the first of the bodies, two of them, and they are a mile from the camp. This mm-hmm. is the other part that is amazing to me. In that cold with no shoes on, these, these men they found were wearing long underwear and that was it. How did they make it a mile? How did they live a mile? In 40 below. I don't know. They were on the ground surrounding what appeared to be maybe a small fire that they had tried to build. Some people said their hands were actually burned, like they had tried to literally put their hands in the flames. They were that cold. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also some evidence that they had tried to climb a tree right there. Like they were trying to see, get up high and see something. Mm -hmm. Um, And they died of hypothermia right there around the fire. And they both had very significant physical injuries, too. Yeah, like they'd been in a fight. Like Mm -hmm. they'd been in some kind of a fist fight. Their hands were all dinged up. And yeah, they Mm -hmm. looked like they'd been in a fight. And blunt force trauma. Yeah. Blunt force trauma to the the chest and head. Here's the hard thing about the blunt force trauma and all the trauma Mm -hmm. is that there are so many conflicting stories about the damage to yeah. the bodies. Some people say only three of them had blunt force trauma. Some say yeah. they all did. There were autopsies done. Uh-huh. That stuff has all been kept as classified information. Now, I will get to some of that because I watched a documentary that was done in 2014 where they did get to see some of the classified information. And we'll get to mm-hmm. that a little more. But they were injured. They were not in a good place. Not only were they frozen to death, but they were injured. So a a little ways from them, they also found three more bodies. They appeared to be running back toward camp when they died. They also froze to death. There's question about if they were physically damaged as well. You know, some of some of what I've read said is that some of them had broken ribs, skull fractures, and then also that they had um, like internal organ damage. We're going to get to, I've done some research about what could potentially cause things like that so that we can, you know, look at this from kind of the rational side of it. And then we're going to tune into it and tell you what we get. Mm -hmm. So the last four 
were not found until two months later. And they um, were about 75 meters away from the pine tree where the first two were found in a ravine. And they were covered in about four feet of snow by this point. Those four, they were actually dressed for the weather. They weren't in their underwear. They were dressed in warmer clothes. They were also wearing some of the clothes of some of the other people, which they thought was weird. And maybe it was just rushing, throwing stuff on as fast as possible. You weren't paying attention to if it was yours or not. There was also a question about whether some of the other, if they died a little later and some of the other victims had some clothes on that they pulled off of them and put on themselves. There's a lot of question about why they weren't all wearing their own clothes. Now, these four are the ones that definitely had experienced severe blood force trauma, broken ribs. One victim had a skull fracture. Two of these victims also had radioactive material on their clothing. Okay, that was super weird. And we'll get to why that is especially weird. Now, one of the victims, a woman, she, she was missing her tongue, her eyes, and a bunch of her facial tissue. Like something mm-hmm. had chewed her up. She was missing like predation kinds of injuries. Yeah. Uh, she was the only one that had injuries like that, though, which they thought was very strange. So the official Russian investigation into their deaths took four weeks. And after four weeks, they determined that they died from an elemental force that the tourists were not able to overcome. (laughs) Uh, Vague much? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get to the theories here in a minute, but that's what they determined. And then they closed the investigation and they classified all of the files around these deaths. And they stayed classified for 50-odd years, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you got to remember who this was and where this was at the time that it was, 1959 Mm -hmm. in Russia. For one, it was a time when anything that could have appeared to look bad on the part of the Russian government would never have been released. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Ever. And there would have been lots of spin and there would have been... Lots of, you know, ways to try and save face. And there right. are a lot well, of things. Complete control of the media. Yeah, you know, yeah. Total they control of the media. Completely control the narrative. Yeah. Total control of all of the information that went around. Okay, so let's talk about some of the theories around this story. You know, one of the reasons that this became so famous is because these were young, you know, in their 20s or early 30s students. They had they had lives ahead of them, had families. This was so many people were impacted by this, and particularly a man named Yuri Yutin. Yuri Yutin was the 10th man on this expedition. Now, this is where I think we get into sort of our realm of things a little bit, Mm -hmm. because he was on the expedition only for a couple of days and then started feeling sick. But you know what he felt? He felt heart palpitations. Do you know what I feel when I'm having a really strong intuitive hit to get the hell out of a situation? Right. Heart palpitations. It's anxiety Mm -hmm. symptoms, right? Yeah. So he says he's sick. He can't do this. He turns around and he goes back. Yeah. And so he's the only survivor. And we'll get mm-hmm. to how he kind of came into play in the in the investigation here in a little bit, because he was interviewed in this documentary that I watched. And we'll talk about that. So some of the things um, people really wanted to say this was just a natural phenomenon, right? They talked about it was probably an avalanche. Well, there was no avalanche. in the There area. was no avalanche. No. no. And there's never been an avalanche in Dyatlov Pass. Never a recorded avalanche there. It's just not an avalanche place. Some people said a hurricane. Now, this really puzzled me because I'm like, uh, this is inland Siberia. 
that's, that's not where hurricanes happen. Well, it turns out that hurricane is just a term used by, in Russia, describe extreme weather. So just an extreme weather event is actually what it means when they say a hurricane, not a literal hurricane. We're thinking of East Coast hurricanes here in the U.S. No, they're just thinking of an extreme weather event. And of course, in Siberia, there are a lot of (coughs) extreme weather events. Let me tell you about one. So there is a scientific, some people in the scientific community, the weather community particularly have an idea around this. And it's called the Carmen Vortex Street. And it is a group of whirlwinds that produce a low frequency sound. And so you don't actually hear it, but it vibrates the hairs in your ears. And it causes nausea and intense um, psychological discomfort. It can cause um, confusion and fear and panic. And so some people think that a weather event like that happened and that's what caused them to cut open their tent and run out because something was happening, but they didn't know what. I don't know. These are experienced expeditioners, you know, they're experienced in cross-country skiing in this kind of weather, would they really leave their tent in a situation like that? And if they did, why were they so beat up? Where does the blunt force trauma come in? You know, those whirlwinds don't cause blunt force trauma. You know, where? why do they look like they've been in a fight? Why are their knuckles all beat up like they look like they've been fighting something? That one didn't fly for me so much, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, we're talking about a place that can have some really weird weather. Yeah. I'm going to get to a few of these, and then I'm going to get to the big one that, um, well, kind of the big one. <laughs> so there's not the big ones. Yeah. There's so many. Okay, mm-hmm. I can't. We can't possibly cover all of them because this show no. would be like. 10 hours long. Um, and you probably would get bored, but, um, you know, of course the idea of aliens, some kind of alien event came up. There were orange lights in the sky documented by people 50 miles away from where they were at the time that this occurred. And so there was a question about were there UFOs in the sky that night? Could something have happened? Because here's one problem. They don't find a lot of footprints around the bodies, except for the footprints made by the people. So there's not a lot of evidence that anyone else was around them at the time. However, we are talking about three weeks after the event. Yeah. It snowed. How do you know for sure that there aren't? Well, the wind has blown like crazy. and Yeah, we know how wind will travel, how snow travels. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. There's questions about that. Okay. So then there's a question about was there kind of a, some kind of a nuclear event because they aren't very far at this point from a Russian nuclear test site. And if there's anything we know about Russians and nuclear test sites or nuclear anything, they lie. Okay. We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all you have to do is know the story of Chernobyl to know that if this was a nuclear event, we would never know the truth. So there's a question about that. But I wanted to know, would their injuries stack up? with a nuclear event. So I did some research on blast injuries. So what kind of injuries do you get from a blast? And there are several different kinds. Primary blast injuries are like internal body organ damage, lung damage, stomach, brain, um, you know, rupture your eardrums, rupture your eyes, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Gas filled parts of your body will be injured first. Mm -hmm. So secondary blast injuries come from debris. 
if there's something, you know, you, a, a building falls down on you or, you know, something's flying around. They're out in Siberia in the snow. The only thing that could be hitting them is trees. There was no evidence in the photos that I saw that indicated that there was tree damage. No. So I don't know about that. So then there are tertiary, tertiary blast injuries. Tertiary blast injuries are the injuries that people get when they are thrown through the air into something else. And that is when blunt force trauma happens. You know, a couple of them were found by a tree. The tree had mm-hmm. some damage. They took that to be damage from climbing the tree. But they weren't all found by a tree. You know, they weren't no. all found. And this is out in deep snow. So really, was that were, were there very many things for them to be blown into? Was there evidence of a blast pattern in the snow? No, there really wasn't. Although I wanted, I will admit, I wanted this to be a nuclear thing really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my initial thought is this is nuclear. The government has done something nuclear and they've covered it up, you know, because there was nuclear mm-hmm. material on two of their, um, clo- on, on mm-hmm. two people's clothing. Well, it is near a nuclear blast site. Those two people that were down in the ravine, there is a stream that runs through the bottom of that ravine. And that stream has been known to be contaminated with radiation because of the nuclear testing going mm-hmm. on nearby. And so they think that they, that could have happened. They could have, they were kind of laying in the stream. The, the one woman particularly that had parts of her face missing was laying mm-hmm. face down in the stream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could that um, have answered why... Uh, nuclear, you know, materials on their clothing. It could, it could generally. And I would think if this was a nuclear blast, they would all have radioactive material on them. And they didn't, only two of them did. Mm -hmm. Although interesting that they thought to test them for it. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, do you think that every time, do they test every single body for, for radiation when they do an autopsy? I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it too. That seems, that seems like a, a stretch, right? Right, it know. does. Yeah. It seems like something maybe they knew that we don't know cuz I'll tell you one thing I know from studying this uh, case, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm going to get into probably the most popular theory. Well, first I'm going to tell you what the Russian government thought happened um initially, and then I'm going to tell you so initially, they blamed the Manzai tribe. And the Manzais are an ind- indigenous tribe that live in the Ural Mountains, which is where these uh, skiers were. They're very isolated. The reason they suspected them be- is because in the 1930s, a Manzai shaman murdered a scientist that was out studying. I think it was a geologist, and he was out studying the rocks in the area. So they, they don't like visitors. They don't like trespassers. No. They The trees around where they live are marked with these symbols so that people know that they're walking into Manzai territory. And they, they do a lot of things to warn people off. But this initially brought suspicion on them. The other reason there was suspicion on them is because the skiers kept a journal of, of, their, of every day of their experiences and what was happening. And the skiers document in their journal a confrontation with some people from the Mansai tribe when they entered their territory. And in there, there were a lot of photos. They found a, um, one a of them lot. had a camera and there are tons of photos. They took lots of photos. And there are photos of the Mansai symbols carved into the trees. So they thought they had this confrontation with the Mansai uh, tribe. They, they went into their territory anyway, and then Mansai went and killed them. The, the reality is it just, there's really no evidence that that happened. There's lots of evidence to the fact that it didn't. But apparently, according to um, 
a documentary that I watched where they interviewed some people from the Mansai tribe. They said that the KGB actually took some of the Mansai tribal members and tortured them and um, interrogated them and accused them of these murders. Mm-hmm. They eventually cleared them because they could not find anything that indicated that they actually did it. The Manzai tribe says that what they were actually doing is they were warning them not to go into the woods. And they were warning them not to go into the woods because of the mink. And here we have mm-hmm. the big theory. The big one. The mink. Yep. yep. So the mink is the yeti, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to love it when I tell you about this documentary, Katie, because... <laughs> There's a very there's a very famous man in Idaho in this documentary. Someone uh-huh. that comes up in every um, Bigfoot or Yeti documentary, and we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So they talked to this woman who was five years old at the time that the Dyatlov Pass incident happened, and she remembers when the students came through. She remembers the do- the uh, confrontation. She says. She said the reason that they were warning the skiers is because at that time there were children disappearing in the woods and never being, never coming back. Wow. They believed it was the mink. It was the Yeti that was taking these kids. They also were finding dead deer and the deer had their tongues ripped out. Now, remember that one of the members of the Dyatlov party also had her tongue ripped out. Yeah. So there was a lot of, speculation around this. That brings me to probably the biggest theory, anyway, from a paranormal standpoint, I think, Mm -hmm. that we have of what happened here. So this, a lot of this information comes from the documentary called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. And this was done in 2014. Now, I want to give this with a caveat because this was filmed like every Bigfoot documentary I have ever seen. Yeah which is they know what they're going to find before they ever find it. And so everything is filmed in order to lead to that point. It's not objective at all. It also has, it has tons of reenactments of things that we have no idea if they actually happened or not. So it really crosses the line between fantasy and reality. It's a discovery channel. (laughs) documentary and you know how discovery channel like and the mermaids yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> y'all remember the mermaid documentary that absolutely ruined katie's daughter's life <laughs> it ruined my life people yeah because that kid didn't sleep for three months she would come in my room nearly every night crying because she was really afraid of mermaids now know this we live in idaho we're landlocked at that time she'd never even been to the ocean but <laughs> mermaids were gonna get us for sure Thanks, Discovery Channel. Yep, right. (laughs) Well, and it was filmed in a very similar way, where so much of it was fabricated, and it was so directed, and the people that they spoke to coached, you know. So, yeah. The reason I bring it up, one, is because this is a very prevailing theory. Also, because if they are to be believed, they got access to a bunch of documentation from the Russian government that we'd never seen before. And so Mm -hmm. there's some information in that documentary that they swear that so they worked with a Russian journalist who helped them get a lot of these interviews and get a lot of this information. And if the things that they found are true, then it, it the story takes a kind of a turn, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. So they tell the basic story of you know the Dyatlov incident. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Incident. Yeah. So they tell the story with a few caveats. They go talk to the Manzai tribe. And the Manzai tribe is who tells them, hey, we what we were really doing was warning them off from the mink. Mm-hmm. And that, that the mink was, you know, 
in in the woods and we were afraid that they were, you know, it would kill them because it had been killing other people. Yeah. And the kids kind of just blew it off. You know, there's a there's one thing that's very interesting. So they were writing a little newspaper. They were doing a lot of documenting of this, you know, yeah. in photos, in diaries. They were writing a little newspaper about their trip. And in one point in there, in the newspaper, there's a headline that says, we now know the snowmen exist. There's a lot of different theories about what they meant by that. Some people think they just meant it was them in the Ural Mountains. The snowman exists in the Ural Mountains. Well, that, here they are, you know. Yeah. Or was it, in fact, that the man's eye had told them about the mink, and sometimes the mink was called the snowman, mm -hmm. and so they were talking about that, or had they, in fact, seen it? So yeah. they got a hold of, in this documentary, they got a hold of the photos that... Not only the photos, but also the negatives of the photos, which I thought was interesting because the negatives tell you a lot because they're they're all together in one piece. They're not separated or cut apart. Mm -hmm. And so it is intentional to show you that it was all the same roll of film. Uh -huh. Where the day before they were killed, this documentary absolutely swears up and down that they took a picture of a mink. And it's one of those black and white vague kind of looks like an animal or a very large man hunched over in the woods picture mm -hmm. that we've seen on how many Bigfoot documentaries. I mean, it's a right. very typical, was that just a guy in shadow or was that, or really was it a tree, a weird tree in a shadow? It's pretty, <coughs> it's pretty clear. Some of them definitely, I think do are trees, but this photo mm -hmm. looks a lot more like an animal. It really does. So they go from that standpoint and they go way off the rails in this documentary. And I'm not going to tell you all of it because most of it is they go out to prove that the mink exists and a bunch sure. of stuff. And that's not really germane to our investigation here. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that they do is that they go to the Dyatlov Institute. And the Dyatlov Institute has been was formed to preserve the story and the evidence and the the witness, um, like the rescuer people's sure. testimonies, those kinds of things. And there they meet two of the rescue teams. So there are two guys who were literally there, uh -huh. part of the team that went and found them in the first place. And they say that the tent had small slits in the top of it and big slices on the sides. They think that they were cutting holes in the tent to see what was outside. Again, it's minus 40. It's dark. It's winter. Mm -hmm. That would kill them. That's Why would they do that? Yeah, I don't know. But they did. They did verify that they did physically see those things. Then they also say that they saw large, deep footprints leading from the tent. And that had not ever been reported in anything I've read. Everything I've read has said the only footprints that were found were the footprints of the victims themselves. They swear that there were footprints in the snow mm -hmm. that were large. Like, you know, your typical Bigfoot footprint. We've all seen, you know, mm -hmm. the casts they take and stuff. It was like that. And they also referenced that the autopsies on the victims, the, the, the doctor that performed the autopsy said that the blunt force trauma that the victims experienced could not have been caused by a human. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't punch somebody in the head hard enough to cause the kind of blunt force trauma that they had. Mm -hmm. That it had to come from something stronger than them. So, of course, that leads again to the mink. And here then comes our 
Idaho famous Jeff Meldrum. Right. So Jeff Meldrum is a scientist at Idaho State University, where Katie yeah. and I went to college, yeah. and he is a legit, for real, Bigfoot researcher. He's a oh, biologist. Yeah. He's in every Bigfoot documentary you ever see. There's always yeah. some quote from Jeff Meldrum. He is very well respected because he doesn't take this from a paranormal side of things so much as uh, he truly believes that there is a primate of some sort that exists um, across the world that we have yet to discover. And he compiles all kinds of evidence. He showed a big footprint that came from Russia of what the Manx footprint looks like and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which was interesting. So then they discover something else that I had not heard anywhere else either. And that is that the Soviet government had something called the Snowman Commission. And it was actually an expedition to tr- prove that the Mank exists. And they were investigating in the Ural Mountains mm-hmm. in January of 1959. Now that is, and they've got, they had the documentation of it. Of course, I haven't physically seen it. I just seen it, you know, I just saw it on the yeah. film. So, yeah. but they swear, first of all, they used that word snowman. And yeah. so did um, the people in the expedition, which I thought was very uh-huh. interesting. Also, lots of the Dyatlov files are still classified. They got access to some of them. They got the photos. They got some of the journals. They didn't get it all. And why is it classified? Like, if this really was just a an extreme weather event that killed tourists, as yeah. they said, why would you classify the story? Like, that right. doesn't really make sense, does it? No. Okay. So this is where it gets weird. So remember Yuri Uten? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he's the guy that left the expedition early. Right. Now, some stories say that he left the expedition before it started. These guys say he left it a couple of days in. Mm-hmm. He seemed to confirm that that was the case. Okay, so he records a video on his deathbed talking about his experiences with this. And here's what happened. So he was asked to identify the hiking, the hikers' belongings. So he was asked to go through all their stuff, identify it was theirs, let them know if there was anything in their stuff that didn't belong to them mm-hmm. as they were doing this investigation, right? So you know what he finds in their belongings hmm. is a military boot cover. It's the kind of boot covers oh. that the Russian military wore over their boots. It's They showed it. It's army green. It's stamped with Russian lettering. Mm-hmm. And he said that no one had anything like that, that no one had any reason to have that with them. Mm-hmm. So that was very strange. Indicated mm-hmm. that maybe the Russian government maybe had actually been to this site before searchers had been to uh-huh. the site. They get access to some military files. The uh, um, journalists get some access to the military files. And one of the things that they find very interesting, at this, the file was stamped that it was opened on February 6th. Wow. Well, they didn't find this, supposedly didn't find right. the, these hikers, these uh, skiers, until the 20th of February. Right. So the military has this file opened on February 6th. And there are photos of the tent. There are photos of the bodies. There are also some photos that look like Bigfoot. They're in the snow. I know how variable snow is. It's hard Mm -hmm. to determine if it really is that or not. Of course, the guys in the documentary wanted it to be that. Of course. 
you know, there is some indication here that the military knew about these missing skiers long before anyone else did. Because the reason they didn't find them until, you know, late in February is because they didn't turn up. They weren't late to their halfway point right. until the 15th or the 16th or something like that. Right. So this was long before that. So mm-hmm. it is believed that somehow the, the Russian military did know about this that had already been out there. And then they just left it mm-hmm. to be found. Right. Which was another like secretive, why are you hiding this kind of thing? If you found mm-hmm. them, why don't you just say you have found them? Why didn't they... Why did they then let these people go searching for them, which mm-hmm. was really interesting. So this is when they talk about that they found a piece of paper in the tent that says something about now we know the snowman exists. Uh-huh. So in some stories, this was the article. This was the headline of an article in the newspaper that they were writing. Some people say it was written by itself on a single piece of paper in the tent alone. If they're being attacked by a mink, I'm not sure that somebody is going to take a moment to jot down now we know the snowman exists before right. they go burning out of their tent in their underwear in 40 below weather. I, I don't know. Right. Or did so that they start writing that. that after they had talked to the Mansai? Right. right? That, and that was the, the basis of writing that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's hard to know. But that definitely... There's a lot of question around that. This is when they find the the last of the photos and they find mm-hmm. this dark figure in the forest that is supposedly a mink. And it is in the original negatives. They showed the negatives. They're all in a row. They're not cut apart or anything. They're all together. You know how, you know, if, if you're too young listening to this, you don't even know what we're talking about. But you know how photos you used to get, you'd get your, 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 your photos developed. And when mm-hmm. you got them back, you would get the negatives and the negatives are basically the, the the strip of film that can be used to mm-hmm. recreate the pictures over and over again, right? Sure. So those were with the pictures. It seemed to all be intact, not separated. It also seemed to flow with the other stuff. They were taking a lot of pictures just out into the forest, uh-huh. like just and and we've done this, right? Yeah. <laughs> You think you see something, you take a picture, you know, and uh-huh. then you just get a picture that's just trees. There were a lot of those pictures leading up to this picture of the mink. Mm-hmm. So maybe. So one big question that comes up is why did the mink attack them? Because there are, they said that they talked to some um, Yeti researchers who said that there are 5,000 accounts of contact with a mink in that area. And none of them indicate that the mink tried to attack them unless the mink was threatened. So there were some with hunters that like, you know, got charged because they had guns or whatever. But most of the time, minks, the Yeti doesn't, it just tries to get away because it wants to be elusive. It doesn't like being seen, right? Mm -hmm. So like, why would a mink attack this tent full of kids? Well, so then they show this very sketchy, dark video of a guy who says, I think he says he was Russian military, but you know, how do you know? And that what had been happening is that there was a two-stage rocket test that night mm-hmm. that, from that um, nuclear test site. Mm-hmm. And the nuclear, that two-stage rocket landed, crash landed not very far from where these kids were camped. Okay. And that makes so much sense. Right. It'll make sense in a minute. Yeah. 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 The orange light in the sky. Mm -hmm. They think that that provoked the mink to attack the tent 
and the kids were freaking out. They didn't know what was attacking them. Mm-hmm. They cut the holes in the tent to see what was attacking them. And then they just went out on the dead run in their underwear because they thought something was trying to kill them. And then they died of exposure. Mm-hmm. In the midst of that, some of them came into physical contact with the mank and were injured. And that's where the, their injuries came from. Okay. It wraps it up pretty nicely, honestly. I don't know if it's too convenient, but it does kind of make sense. Like, there are a lot of separate pieces of this that don't make sense, and this brings them together mm-hmm. in a way that kind of does make sense, mm-hmm. if in fact the mank exists. Now, there are stories of yetis across the the globe, right? Mm-hmm. We live in a mountainous, remote place. There are tons of stories of yetis here, you know, there, but they're everywhere that's a remote backcountry, mountains, woods kind of place has a story about a yeti or a Bigfoot or whatever you want to call it or a mank. And so I, I don't like the way that they're, that these stories are covered because they're always covered in a way that's very, you know, sensational. But do I legitimately think that something like that exists? I do. You look at Jeff Meldrum's research, it's legitimate. There's real stuff there. Now, I don't know if that's what killed these kids or not, but it, it does it does make some sense to me. I don't know, Katie. Do you do you, does that theory ring true to you? Mostly it does. And the reason why is because, and, and we'll get to this here in, you know, in the psychic analysis, but I had you know, I've studied this case more than once, and I every time I've looked at it, I have really believed that there was that you know that they they were attacked by by these beings. Mm-hmm. But I had I channeled a message this morning from one of the hikers, and so what I'm hearing from you is really really making sense uh-huh. in some ways, and in other ways, she's going to counter that a little bit in the message that she that I channeled from her. But so yes and no. How's that? Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, that for me as well, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot we don't know. Uh-huh. I think there are pieces to this puzzle that if we had them would make this all fit together better. Mm-hmm. But it does bring together a bunch of the elements that seem unrelated to make it related. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I mean, Sasquatch is still considered to be a kind of a paranormal kind of a thing because we don't literally truly have proof that it exists. Mm-hmm. But I feel a little more settled about the story uh-huh. with this outcome than I did with some of the others that I've read. Because it doesn't mm-hmm. leave out so many pieces of the puzzle like a lot of the other answers do. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Well, why don't we... Now, that's the story. That's the story. And if you want to look up the Dyatlov Pass incident um, and you want to spend the next, I don't know, five years researching it, feel free. (laughs) There's books, there's documentaries, there's websites, there's a zillion articles. It will take forever. Um, We've covered it as comprehensively as I feel like we could. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly do your own research on it, too. There's so much out there. Oh, yeah. But I think now let's move into the last segment of our show, which is the psychic analysis. So we want to take a moment as professional psychics, as people who've worked in paranormal things for many, many years, and and really ask, what intuitively do we feel happened? Mm-hmm. So Katie, I know that you have a channeled message for us. So do you want to start with that? 
I do. So this morning I was just taking my coffee and thinking about this case and, you know, and about how all the weird pieces and and that obviously all the misinformation and, you know, as a professional psychic medium, I will be honest, I don't always really remember to use my gifts the way I could. Right. And, and suddenly I felt like, why don't I try to channel one of the hikers like they could tell us what happened at least to some degree right right and actually one of the girls came through really strong for me she called herself Ludi though it looks like they called her Luda but uh, you know potatoes potatoes right, right? but she called herself could have been a nip- nickname that that's very mm-hmm. close so she told me quite a few interesting things i'm not going to read her message exactly because it's it's a little disconjointed, but I'm going to put it together. So a few things. Um, on Yuri, the Yuri that turned back after two days. Yeah. Yuri had, there was, she said there, his discomfort came because two of the other men that were on this hike, after they got into it, after they started on the hike, they were immediately talking about the snowman. She And she says they called him the snowman because that's what the... the loose translation of what the the mancy called it mm-hmm. called the mink was the snowman or at least that's how they were translating it she gotcha. said they were already talking about that they had already discussed going off course she said they weren't off course because of whether they weren't lost they knew exactly where they were going really that is interesting but these were plans that were kind of dropped on the group by two of the the men i'm going to i'm thinking diatlov was probably one of them right mm-hmm. but or not Dyatlov, but Yuri, not Dyatlov, the other Yuri that was in charge of this group. Anyway. Yes. So he, Well, he was Dyatlov. He yeah, was Dyatlov. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Anyway. So anyhow, so she says that after, you know, once they got on the trek, these two men were really excited. They, they, she said it kind of was fishy, you know, but they were very excited. They had been talking to people. They had some research. I feel like they knew, she said they knew more than they were saying and what I, I suspect is true is that they knew about the government group already. I, I'm not convinced they weren't actually a part of it or were, you know, maybe sharing notes. There was some connection to the government group that was looking for the snowman or that had had. That is super. There was a connection there. So anyway, but the Yuri that left the group was pissed and wasn't having it. The other hikers, she said, they were all really uh, adventurous. They were all super, you know, chill to just go. It was exciting. It was kind of a big deal to be able to be a part of this group. Mm -hmm. There had been some press about them. They didn't want to turn back, but he did. He was not having it. And so basically, um, yeah, I would say that the, the heart palpitations that he said he was having, he probably was because he got really freaked out about it and upset and left the group. So she said that, um, that that's why he left. Now, as they got closer to where they were going, so again, they were not off course. She says they knew right where where, where they were going. Um, I, that's I find that really interesting because mm-hmm. they were so experienced. Uh-huh. I found it strange that they would be able to get off course because I'm sure mm-hmm. that they were using navigational skills and you know the uh-huh. sun and the north star and compasses and stuff to make sure that they knew where they were and so i thought that was odd considering mm-hmm. their experience that they would get off course mhm well and i asked her why i said well what what was it about where you were going right and she all she said was because that's where yuri said we needed to go so you know yuri yuri had a plan he knew he had some kind of inside knowledge he did 
Yeah. And she said that, again, they weren't really privy to everything that he and one of the other men seemed to know, but it was kind of, she called it a lark. You know, this was a big fun thing they were doing that they would be able to talk about forever. And it was, she thought would bring them some fame. And so that's kind of what they were doing. Ah, interesting. Well, it did seem like they were documenting it very well. Like they thought that they would need that information at some yeah, point. Definitely. Because they were doing something that I read in one place that no one had ever done this, had never trekked all the way across this part of uh-huh. uh, the Ural Mountains before. And that some people didn't want them to go because it was so dangerous and they didn't know what they were going to encounter. Uh-huh. But so she said it, it, was, it was really an honor to be a part of this group, to be considered a skilled enough hiker to be able to be a part of this group. Sure. Especially as a woman, to be, you know, allowed to be involved was a big I, deal for her and the other woman that went. Yeah. And I thought that, too, that I, I thought it was interesting that there were two women, women on this trip in mm-hmm. Russia in 1959. It just mm-hmm. didn't seem like a time when women necessarily would have been involved. Uh-huh. Yeah. So then uh, about their confrontation with the Monsi, she says that uh, Yuri was very rude to them, acted as if he was, uh, that they were, didn't see them as equal. Uh, it, she said it was actually a very racist uh, time that we don't, mm-hmm. you, she said, you need to understand that it was a very racist time. And that, uh, you know, the, the men particularly, even though there were women in this group that were, you know, they were, they were strong women of, of their own accord. She said they didn't really have much of a say or a voice. So, like, they didn't speak to the Monsi, right? That wasn't their role. But uh-huh, she, said okay. that, she said that they were very rude to them, uh, kind of laughed them off to their faces, but actually then later were really, really excited about it because it was confirming what they thought they were coming to see, essentially. So this was, so this, they were taking the entire trek or, or, you know, we're, we're planning on it, but she says from the get go, really the, the plan was to encounter the mink. That really was what they were doing uh, in a sense, though, not all of that had really been conveyed to the whole group. So, you know, take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. So then I asked her about the night in question yeah. and here's some interesting things from her. She said, first off, what they heard was an unbelievable sound, a sound she said they were getting ready for bed, that they were, and some people were actually in bed, mm-hmm. and that um, they heard an unbelievable sound that kind of sounded like um, screeching or uh, screaming, squealing. She said it's hard to understand, it's hard to explain it, but it was an enormous deafening sound. So that, maybe that rock or crashing. Yes, and but and she said they saw green lights. I wondered if ah. that was the uh, the light filtering through their tent, or Maybe. if you know from a, a ways away it was a different color than it was up close. But she said that what they saw was green light, uh, and that it filled the entire sky, and it was wow. absolutely terrifying. So that happened, and then she said it was dead silent, dead silent for a, a short time. So I asked her what a short time meant. She, I, I didn't feel like I had a great answer from her or a clear answer from her on that. A short time indicated to me that maybe it was just a, a minute or two. Uh-huh, and okay. then she said an enormous commotion uh, surrounding their tent. She says they did not cut their tent open. She says we did not. Because uh, I asked her, I said, why, why would that happen? And she said that did not happen. Uh, truly, they were uh, gathering, grabbing whatever clothes, whatever, anything they could because they knew, I mean, they were being attacked. She mm-hmm. also talked about a horrific smell. 
that they they smelled something uh first and then so basically there was almost like a fight happening outside of their tent but was crashing into their tent which made me wonder if there were two mink that were potentially fighting with each other maybe i mean they did talk about that something might have provoked mm -hmm. them scared them yeah and that's she said it what happened that you know the sound, the crash, the whatever that was. She didn't know what it was, but she said that was so disorienting and frightening. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then they have this. So they start screaming in the tent, uh, trying to grab clothes, trying to, you know, do something. She says that the tent was torn open. They did not tear it open. That that didn't happen. Been my uh, suspicion all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she said that did not happen. And and that it was uh, these enormous figures, but it wasn't one. She said that there were three. There were initially two, uh, and then a third appeared kind of out of the woods. So they, of course, start running and screaming, you know, out into the night, basically. She said, at that point, it was it was run for your life, and that's all anyone could think of. And so, yes, they did grab various uh, whatever they could on their way out the door. But, I mean, this all happened in a matter of seconds. Right. And so they ran out into the night. Some uh, tried to stay together. Some did not. She was in the party that made it into the ravine. Uh She said at some point they heard screaming. They heard like terror behind them, but just didn't stop running. At some point, she said that they were not pursued any longer or didn't think that they had been pursued and basically just kept running. She said she thinks that's why they stayed alive a little bit longer than the others because they basically just didn't stop. So their bodies stayed warmer, you know, they, they kept going. Mm-hmm. So that's what she knew. Uh, she did say that for a couple of days before this incident, they had felt watched and uncomfortable. I asked her about the picture of the, the mink. She said that they did think that uh, Yuri felt like he had gotten a picture. They didn't know for sure that that was kind of, they didn't know. They they had taken a sure. lot of pictures and they thought maybe they no digital cameras in those days right right, <laughs> right but they didn't know for sure so that's pretty much where her story ends I said now your body you know had had all of these these injuries and this damage to it she couldn't speak to that um, that obviously happened after she died she said that she froze to death or that was that's what she thinks happened um, you have to know that this was an extremely disorienting experience and so I think her you know, her recollections were also a little bit uh, skewed because of that. With that in mind, then I still think that what happened to her face was just predation. I do. I I don't feel like that was actually the mink, but because once they had gotten away from the mink, it seems like they didn't really have a need to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. Because the mink weren't really... I don't know. My my feeling on it is that the mink weren't really after them. It just yeah. scared them. They ran out of their yeah. tent. They happened to be there. Then there was this crazy melee around them. Yeah. And and then it was all over and everyone died. Yeah. Yeah. So wrong place, wrong time. You know, I mean, it's not like they were specifically a target. They were just they happened to be there. Yeah. They just when happened to be. This thing happened. Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you for that channel. That clarifies a lot of things. Yeah, some and some not. I, you know, I mean, obviously there there must have been a lot of footprints. You know, there must have been a lot of footprints. But 
I am 100% sure there were. So my sense of this, I have a very strong bullshit meter. Yeah. And so parts of this story come across to me as complete fabrication many times. But what I, my sense of this as a psychic is that the military had that rocket crash. Mm-hmm. They knew they had. They went out looking for it. They found this insane scene mm-hmm. and they covered it up. Because they mm-hmm. thought it was related to a test that they had done. I feel like they covered up all the track. I feel, you know, they may have known about the Mank being there. They may have not. But I do feel like they covered up anything that made it look like it had anything to do with the military or the government. Uh-huh. I feel like they just covered it up and then left them there to be found by someone else to come up with what happened. They have allowed the speculation to happen for so long. Uh-huh. One of the things I read is that there's so much speculation. It's kind of like the Loch Ness Monster, you know, yeah. that people have their 100% sure they know the story. And that if they even ever came out with the full truth of this story, that most people wouldn't believe it. Right. Because they're convinced that they know what the truth of it is. And I think it was 100% a Russian government cover up mm-hmm. based on that rocket crash. And yep. everything else was just crazy chance, <clears throat> excuse me, that those kids were there at that time. Absolutely. Um, that it scared the mank the way that it did, you know, whatever happened there. But I think that that's really the underlying thing here is that this was a mm-hmm. government cover up to protect them from whatever, you know, if this was uh, this rocket test was illegal, if it was nuclear, whatever it was that they were doing, they didn't want anybody to know they were doing it. Yep. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I do feel like they were, they, they saw the mink footprints. They knew, you know, yeah. they had to have known. But again, all of the misdirects. There are photos of, the... of them in the military file. The military file that was open on February 6th has photos of big footprints in the snow. Yeah, they knew. I, but I do feel like maybe they, I, I don't know. What do you do? Sweep those away? I mean, you know, or just hope that time will. I, I had wondered if they'd if they fill up with snow. Mm-hmm. I'd wondered if they had assumed that t- enough time would go by before these people would ever be found, that that kind of evidence would basically be gone anyway. Yeah. yeah. And and it seems like the majority of it was gone. Uh-huh. And you think about, I mean, the, the, the people in the ravine were found under four feet of snow. That's how much snow fell in the two months from the time this happened to the time that they were found. I mean, it just, yeah. So the the elements were definitely in their favor in this Surely. situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. It's a fascinating case for sure. It is absolutely fascinating. And it is also maddening because it's one of those that mm-hmm. will we ever really know the answer? And will any of the stories on True Crime Paranormal Will we know the answer? I don't know. You know, I don't know. But you well, can, we'll know what we know, right? We'll know what we know. And, you know, yeah. I always encourage people to go with your gut. What do you feel is right? And that's really the the psychic uh, analysis part of this is what do you feel in your gut is true yep. and right and what isn't? And that's important for us to all, you know, work on and 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 really trust your own intuition. You know, obviously, um, the guy who left the expedition did and he lived. Right. <laughs> so right. tells you something. Mm-hmm. He he knew he knew yeah. that, that that shit wasn't going down with him involved. So no, it wasn't. And yet, if I was invited to go on a expedition to go check out a yeti, I mean, old and fat here, but I still might have tried. <laughs> well, if there were snow machines involved, <laughs> right? I mean, 
some of us may not have shied away from that. So I, I it, can understand it. You know, my wife Rhonda is a huge Bigfoot fan. Oh Would yeah. She take the chance to do something like this? Hell yeah. If there was a snow machine involved. Yes. Definitely <laughs> right. would. There definitely wouldn't have been any uh, you know, cross country skiing across a mountain pass. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, true crime paranormal fans, we've done it. This was our very first show. Yeah. This uh format gives you a pretty good idea of what we'll be doing. We'll have a new show every week. Yes. But what we, we want you to know about what we're doing next week. Uh, yeah, what is it? Let's hear it. So next week, we are going to be discussing the death of Charles C. Morgan. He died in the 70s uh, here in the U.S., and it's a hell of a story. So I'm very excited awesome. to get into it. Yep, I am very excited. So you heard it here first. Now, we want you to know that if you love True Crime Paranormal and you want more True Crime Paranormal content, we have a deal for you. We are on Patreon. And when you go to Patreon, just search for True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. You'll find us right there. If you become a patron of our show, you will get extra content. So there are different levels and different levels give you different extra content. But uh, we will be offering that to everyone who is a a patron. It also just helps us keep the show going. If you love what we do and want to support us, that is a great way to support us. So go check out True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters on Patreon. And And we will be back next week with another true crime paranormal story. Thanks for joining us. Take care, guys. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.